Good evening and welcome to Nightline Africa. We are coming to you from the English service of The Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Clote in Washington, D.C. And most likely, in at least all the 36 states, we should meet that threshold of one-third of the vote cast. So PDP will be looking to strengthen its brand, but also um, taking other coalitions necessary to win uh, the election in 2023. Nigeria's main opposition People's Democratic Party plans to choose its presidential candidate this weekend. Every other day, the political space is shrinking. We have a, a family rule. Now, Dr. Isidjan, our servants will come out to tell the people of Uganda, look here, we need to go back to the constitutional path. Is that an offense? Lawyers for a former Ugandan presidential candidate, Dr. Chisa Beseji, appeal an $8,000 cash bail. The railers, the handlers, had an opportunity to study the impact of Ruto's uh, running man. Ruto's running man apparently is not, he's not a national figure. He's not, well, he's been a one-term MP, he's... He was a deal, but he's not, uh, he's not somebody whose face is synonymous with the national politics. And Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto apologizes to outgoing President Uhuru Kenyatta. We'll have details. Those stories and more coming up on Nightline Africa. In Nigeria, the main opposition People's Democratic Party plans to choose its presidential candidate this weekend ahead of next year's general election. The electoral law requires all political parties to present the names of their respective presidential candidates and running mates by June 3. The winner of the contest is expected to face a stiff competition from the candidates of the ruling All-Progressive Congress, or APC. Analysts say due to the ongoing sharp increase in insecurity and economic challenges facing the country, the PDP's candidate can win next year's presidential election. For the latest development, I reach Osita Chidoka, a spokesperson for Nigeria's main opposition party, PDP. The electoral law requires us to submit the name of our presidential candidate and his running mate by the 3rd of June. So all the political parties in Nigeria are at advanced stages of their nomination process to nominate a candidate and uh, PDP will be doing this, this on the 28th, 29th of um, May. So uh, preparations are in top gear. The contenders are going around the country, talking to the delegates, and um, hopefully at the end of the process, we'll have a candidate for the PDP. Talking about the candidate for the PDP, do you think the individual who will be elected is capable of, or will be capable of winning the presidency during next year's general election? So winning the PDP ticket um, already puts you on a very important pedestal. Roughly, you're already going to earn about 40 to 42% of the voters uh, in Nigeria, the voting population, are likely going to vote for you. So that's the first thing. The person is inheriting a strong uh, platform which is the PDP. What the person will be bringing to the ticket, uh, together with his running mate, is to show the country uh, how capable he is to 
faces numerous challenges confronting Nigeria. They are almost existential challenges. So my expectation is that of all the people contesting, whoever will emerge will have emerged because the delegates uh, will be thinking who can pull us back from the brink and put Nigeria back on the path of growth. People are saying as much as Nigerians want change and need change, the PDP appears not to have it act together. This comes after Peter Obi, one of a leading presidential aspirant of the party, officially penned his resignation uh, from the party. Some people say this could weaken the party uh, during next year's general election. What are your thoughts? Democracy is usually not a tidy affair, and um, there's usually a lot of rancor. But at the end of the day, it is the ability of the person who emerges as a candidate to re-engage all the aspirants, to re-engage the key stakeholders of the party that will mark the differentiating path for that candidate. And I believe that any candidate in PDP who doesn't look into the grievances of um, former Governor Peter Obi, who doesn't try to acknowledge those grievances, will be missing out a great opportunity. So I believe that the candidate, whoever he is that emerges, will most importantly rebuild the platform. He will reach out to all the forces in the platform and ensure that we build a capable war machine to win the general election. So the question that PDP doesn't have its acts together is seemingly so, because in a democracy, in the internal context for power, everybody is trying to take advantage in the power base. Um, the challenge is that the officials of the party must be seen to rise above the fray and provide a level playing field for all the aspirants. Does the PDP have plans to form an alliance in the run-up to the general election? That is on the card. Um, it's on the card. Um, PDP we would like to strengthen the two-party tradition of Nigeria because it offers, um, it reduces the tensions and makes it possible for me, for people to meet the criteria for becoming president in Nigeria. Um, the criteria includes the fact that the candidate must win majority of the vote at the election. But another caveat is that the candidate must win at least one-third of the vote, that is, in at least two-thirds of the state in Nigeria, meaning that you have to score um, one-quarter of the vote in at least two-thirds. So that one-quarter is 25% of the vote cast in about 24 states. So meaning that um, a candidate must have national acceptability to become a president in Nigeria. So forming alliances will be one way of ensuring that if there are parties that are strong in any locality but not nationally strong, we should be able to benefit from that in, in making sure that we sustain our victory across the uh, required 24 states and most likely in at least all the 36 states. We should meet that threshold of one third of the vote cast. So PDP will be looking to strengthen its brand, but also um, taking other coalitions necessary to win uh, the election in 2023. Osita Chidoka is a spokesperson for Nigeria's main opposition party, PDP. He spoke with me from the capital, Abuja.
In the Gambia, the Opposition Alliance for Patriotic Reorientation and Construction plans to soon meet to decide its next line of action. The move comes in response to plans by the administration to establish a special prosecutor to investigate alleged crimes committed under former President Yaya Jame. It also follows a controversial report presented to the government by the Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission or TRRC. It charges Jame with various offenses, including murder, sexual violence, and torture. The APRC formed an alliance with President Adama Baru in the run-up to his re-election bid last year. Baru won a second term. For more reaction to the administration's plans, I reached Duduja. He is the Executive Secretary and Deputy Secretary of the Gambian Opposition Alliance for Patriotic Reorientation and Construction, or APRC. We've all followed the proceedings of the TRRC. To be honest, as a party, it is no surprise to us. It's something we expected, uh, but collectively, we're yet to take any decision over the government-wide paper. Um, in the due course, we'll be having an executive meeting to go through the government-wide paper, page by page, cover to cover, then the party will come out with a decision, either through a press release, a press statement, or we will address uh, the media houses. That will be the party's position. Well, Dudu, some people are suggesting that the prosecution of uh, President Jame will be undermining an agreement that led to a peaceful exit from the Gambia to Equatorial Guinea. What is your take on that? Well, Mr. Pera, that agreement is a gentleman agreement. It's not binding by law. The Constitution supersedes whatever agreement we might have. It is our wish and desire, what we want from the government, and that's what we lobbied for. But it is not a matter of must or a matter of force. It is more of a plea, more you know, of a generous wish, what we want to see happen. For us, we believe it will contribute immensely in unifying this country you know, drawing a line and moving forward. We'll never use that as a yardstick to say that we had an agreement with this government and they must, you know, definitely or they must apply that. Uh, lest we forget the TRRC is constituted by law and for the recommendations it's not binding upon government that they must accept. It's a prerogative for government to say yes to it. Uh, for us, we feel it's a good move. It's a commission. They've uh, um, given their recommendation, and government has accepted that. It's a country. We're all working hand in glove. It's just a process, and it's just starting. We believe it will go a long way, and uh, our hope is the best will come out of it. Dudu, what do you say to those who are of the opinion that, apart from the former president being prosecuted for the alleged rape, killings, and other charges against him, he had enablers within the ruling party, your party, and that those who are complicit of these atrocities and these charges or these crimes should be prosecuted as well. What's your take on that? Well, Mr. Peter, allegations are allegations until proven otherwise. Like the saying goes, every man is innocent until proven guilty. Uh, the government-wide paper is the government-wide paper, but a period of three months is given for those who disagree that they can go to the appeal court. 
of the Gambia and they can appeal um, any cases brought against them or any allegations against them. Now, if you say that he has enablers, I cannot downplay that. Somebody who's been in charge of this country for 22 years, definitely there will be people that supported, that helped in whatever has happened, good or bad. But within the party, um, if there are many amongst them, well, they are not popular with me. These are not people that I know openly in the party. Within the country, yes, because being in government, a lot of people are with you. That does not mean they belong to the party. It's for gains and interests that people join political parties. People serve in government for also their own interests. So I wouldn't deny that. But personally, at the moment, those within the APRC party, openly, I don't know of uh, people who enabled him openly. Again, I make it very clear, I'm not denying that it exists or it is a fact, but it is not open because many amongst them are sympathizers. They hold no positions within the party and uh, people don't see them uh, during party functions, that is in meetings, other events that the APRC party organizes or holds. Dudu Ja is the Executive Secretary and Deputy Secretary of the Gambian Opposition Alliance for Patriotic Reorientation and Construction, or APRC. He spoke with me from the capital, Banjul. Uganda lawyers for former presidential candidate Dr. Chisa Besiji have appealed an estimated $8,080 cash bail imposed on him by a city court. In a tweet, Besiji, who faces charges of inciting violence, stated he would rather endure prison than pay the bail. He has since been remanded in Luzira prison for his refusal. Besiji was arrested on Tuesday at a rally where he called for mass action against the soaring prices of essential goods. The former presidential candidate, who now leads the political pressure group People's Front for Transition, had been demonstrating and calling on the government to solve the sharp rise in the prices of goods and services in the East African country. Civil society and opposition groups have also added their voice to Besiji's call, saying the administration must, in their words, ease the burden and challenges Ugandans face. For more on Besiji's appeal, I reach lead attorney Arias Lukwago. He is also the Lord Mayor of the Ugandan capital, Kampala. He instructed us to pursue an appeal because he felt aggrieved by that decision, which was uh, a political decision rather than a judicial one. And uh, he took exception of that decision. Obviously, it amounted to a miscarriage of justice because the offense with which he's charged is a minor one. It's just a misdemeanor, which wouldn't attract such huge sums of money, which wouldn't attract um, stringent conditions. So the magistrate, in our view, are in law in imposing such astronomical sums of money, 30 million Uganda shillings, almost 9,000 U.S. dollars. That is ridiculous. It's unconscionable, and uh, definitely we could not just take it lying down. We had to pursue it on a, We had to appeal against the same. So today we filed the necessary papers. And uh, we are now waiting for the court to fix a hearing date. But Mr. Lukwago, why are you saying it's a political decision? Because the judge, as you know, being a lawyer, has the power to impose a bail condition, especially when 
Dr. Beseje is often accused by the police or security agencies of constantly violating the Public Management Order Act, disrupting businesses and creating tension in the country. You see, legally speaking, bail should not be denied on the grounds that one can be compelled to pay such amounts. And secondly, you know, it's a constitutional right. And when you are dealing with the same, there is a wealth of authorities to the effect that they should consider the civil liberties of individuals in taking a decision that those liberties should be treated as sacrosanct. They shouldn't be infringed upon unnecessarily. So in this particular case, we look at this charge as being a political one because Dr. VSJ did not offend any law. Before she was arrested and taken to court, he had been confined in his home for over three weeks. Actually, he had been put under house arrest. He had been denied the right to get out of his home to do his own business, and therefore, he has no capacity to pay. That would be a fact that would convince and compel the magistrate to say, no, 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 no. I can't victimize such a person who has already been subject to that kind of horrendous treatment. But it was a surprise. All those issues were ignored. Secondly, this is not a capital offense. We have had people who are charged with murder, rape, uh, gravated robbery, treason, and they are charged, the bail terms are very lenient. Little, little money. And in some cases, with no money at all. Why this small case of purported inciting to violence would invite such uh, onerous conditions? such stringent measures. This is the reason we are saying it's political because everything surrounding this case is political anyway. It's for political reasons that VSJ was incarcerated. It's for political reasons that he was arrested. It's for political reasons that his movements had been curtailed and he was put under house arrest. And it was for political reasons that he was taken to court because he offended no law. What do you say to critics of Dr. VSJ who believe that he is purposely inciting violence as a means of regime change. And this is not his first attempt at doing so. So the imposition of the fine and the bail condition, they argue, is a a step in the right direction to serve as a deterrent, that you cannot create confusion, disaffection, and threaten the country's security and go scot-free. That's very, very unfair. It's a very, very unfair accusation because the constitutional order we have here has got a history. You have the preamble which talks about what the country has gone through, upheavals, turmoil, civil wars, violence, killings, massacres, and so on and so forth. And we made a commitment in the new constitution, a vow never to go back to those dark days and usher in a democratic dispensation. But it's not there. Every other day, the political space is shrinking. We have a family rule. Now, Dr. Rizzi and ourselves will come out to tell the people of Uganda to look here. We need to go back to the constitutional path. Is that an offense? Arias Lukwago is the lead attorney for former Ugandan presidential candidate Dr. Chisa Besiji. He's also the Lord Mayor of the Ugandan capital, Kampala. He spoke with me from Kampala.
Nine South Africans took to the Constitutional Court to challenge an apartheid-era law that prevents books from being easily printed in Braille, the written language for the blind. Critics say the law has made thousands of books inaccessible to blind people, affecting their education and job prospects. For VOA, Zahir Kasim reports from Johannesburg, South Africa. End the book famine for the blind. That's the message these South Africans want to convey to the country's highest court. Two non-profits, Blind SA and Section 27, are in the Constitutional Court to challenge a 44-year-old copyright law that blocks the conversion of books into Braille, a system of touch reading for the blind, without the permission of the publishers. Currently, less than 1% of published works are available in accessible formats to the blind in South Africa. CEO of Blind SA, Jace Nair, listens carefully to the arguments to abolish the outdated law. For the last 44 years, blind people's rights have been violated. And in democratic South Africa, for 28 years, we are being stifled. For how much longer can this continue? The injustices must stop, and it has to stop now. Blind activist Tandile Butana has had her struggles with this law. She has completed a university degree in social sciences, but has delayed her master's degree because of the difficulty of getting textbooks translated into Braille. Unfortunately, we cannot contribute positively to the economy of the country if we are not educated, and education depends on the accessibility of books. During her undergraduate studies, Putana would have to pay other students to read the textbooks out to her. Now, the same copyright law is affecting her ability to help her son with his homework. Me not having books that are accessible for my needs, it makes me a less of a mom. I can't help him on my own. Her struggle is not unique to South Africa's blind community. It's a problem for most visually impaired people in Africa. The World Blind Union estimates blind people on the continent only have access to between 1 and 7% of books. The Marrakesh Treaty, which allows the exchange of accessible format books across international borders, has been signed by a number of African nations. Jackson Agufana, chief executive of Kenya Union of the Blind, via Zoom call, says a positive ruling in South Africa could have implications across the continent and put pressure on other countries to join the Marrakesh Treaty. And I think it will accelerate the pace of other countries, especially countries in the Southern Africa, Eastern Africa, Central, West Africa, and put pressure on governments to ensure that majority of them who have not ratified the treaty are able to do so and those who have ratified and domesticated are able to accelerate the pace of implementation of the treaty so that majority of visually impaired people can access books. South Africa's Constitutional Court has yet to issue a ruling on the copyright law. No one is sure when a decision will be handed down, but South Africa's blind community is hopeful the ruling will be a positive one and open up a new world of content for the visually impaired. Zahir Kassim for VOA News, Johannesburg, South Africa.
next Straight Talk Africa. Persistent drought and overwhelming floods are wreaking havoc across the world, including the African continent, threatening not only livelihoods, but the very fabric of society. How can African countries best deal with this radically changing reality? That's Straight Talk Africa, this Wednesday at 18.30 UTC. All the news and programs about Africa and the world are available to you around the clock on voaafrica.com. Our team is working on updating the news and updating new programs minute by minute to be at the tip of your fingertips. Make it a habit to visit our website, voaafrica.com. You will be glad you did. You are listening to Nightline Africa on the English service of The Voice of America. I'm your host, Peter Clotty, in Washington, D.C. And coming up in the second half of Nightline Africa, the Saturday music spot from our collection of music from the continent. But first, in Kenya, political analysts say the public apology to outgoing President Uhuru Kenyatta by Deputy President William Ruto is unlikely to have any impact in the run-up to the upcoming general election. This after Deputy President Ruto publicly apologized to the President and asked for forgiveness for his statement and actions. It came during the national prayer breakfast organized by the Kenyan parliament in the capital Nairobi. Analysts contend that the apology appears to be too little too late since the president has endorsed former Prime Minister Raila Odinga for the opposition party, the Orange Democratic Movement or ODM. The endorsement, they argue, will enable the former Prime Minister to access state resources as well as attract supporters of the president. Supporters of Ruto say the apology will give the deputy president a significant boost in his presidential electoral prospect in the polls. The president and his deputy fell out after they won re-election in 2018. For the latest political development, I reach attorney James Muamu. He is a former president of the Law Society of Kenya. There are two ways of looking at it. One is uh, the deputy president perhaps acknowledging that there may have been a few things that he did or said that perhaps seven smacked of insubordination. Uh, because there, there, there are a lot of things that he has said. When it comes to the issues of corruption, he will say that, oh, okay, you go and ask the president about this. I am not aware. Perhaps that is a realization that some of the things that he has been saying uh, are totally inappropriate. But secondly, you know, being a politician and realizing that uh, perhaps Mount Kenya could be slipping away from him, he may also want to play uh, an underdog by simply asking for forgiveness so that, uh, you know, that can give him a soft landing when he goes to Mount Kenya. Uh, you could say that is too little too late. I think the body language of the two gentlemen still uh, portrays a lot of bad blood. But James, do you think the apology would have any significant impact on his presidential prospect in the upcoming election, particularly knowing how savvy the the campaign trajectory is now has been set, uh, the lines, uh, the battle lines have been drawn, 
I highly doubt whether that is going to have an impact. But then you never know because uh, for him to have chosen that particular day to apologize and say, look, I am wrong. Uh, in, in, in a way, it also just, you know, he also justified uh, perhaps what Uru has been saying, that, you know, this guy is not supporting me. He goes out there and attacks me. Because, you see, you don't apologize when everything is right. Or you only apologize when something is wrong. But, you know, also the realization that with the appointment of Mata Karua, there seems the trajectory in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Mount Kenya is also changing against him. Before former Prime Minister Raila Odinga picked Martha Karua as uh, his running mate, the latest opinion poll by TIFA study showed that he had improved by five percentage points. Do you think the addition of Martha Karua would give former Prime Minister Raila Odinga the necessary push in the upcoming elections. The appointment of Martha Karua as the running mate for Raelo Dinga is has really excited uh, Raelo Dinga's base and supporters. So he has he has his core supporters. But one particular region that has never supported Raelo Dinga in all his quest to become the president of Kenya is Central Kenya. Do not forget that uh, Martha Karua's face is a national face. She's a woman who was involved in the second liberation uh, when we were fighting uh, the Moi dictatorial regime. She's been a minister in uh, Kibaki's government, and um, uh, she served in many other things. She was uh, a member of the Council of the Law Society of Kenya. And the other factor uh, which you must consider is the fact that for a long, long time, women have been fighting to break through into the upper echelons of the presidency, either the president or the deputy president. So the naming of uh, Mother Karua as the running mate of Raila Odinga has really excited the women folk. It's a huge constituency. And one thing that you know now, with the proliferation of technology, when you have almost uh, 75% of the Kenyan women on WhatsApp, Facebook, you know, this is something that has excited them from the the girls, the women, and the old women. So you are basically saying the choice of Martha Karua is a masterstroke for Raila Odinga? It was a masterstroke for Raila Odinga because, you know, at one particular point, two years down the line, Ruto had said he's going to name a woman uh, running mate, only to change and name a man. So it is a masterstroke. And then the other thing that the reason why it is a master to, you know, Raila Dinga waited for Ruto to name his running, his running mate and then named his later. So he, he had an opportunity, Raila's handlers had an opportunity to study the impact of Ruto's running mate. Ruto's running apparently is not, he's not a national figure. He's not, well, he's been a one-term MP, he's, he was a DO, but he's not, uh, he's not somebody whose face is anonymous with the national politics. So for Evan to sell him outside central Kenya becomes a bit difficult. But you see, Martha has not just been a minister, but see, even in 2013, she ran for the presidency, went around the country, and so her face can be identified with the national cause, which is a very important thing. So I think the choosing of Martha was a masterstroke. James Mwamu is a former president of the Law Society of Kenya. He spoke with me from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi.
The United States has endorsed rewards of up to $1 million each for information leading to the arrest of two Kenyans wanted on charges of drug and wildlife trafficking. For VOA, Mohammed Yusuf reports from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Kenyan security agencies are searching for the two fugitives, Badru Abdul Aziz Saleh and Abdi Hussein Ahmed. Speaking to reporters Thursday in Nairobi, the head of Kenya's Criminal Investigation Unit, George Kinoti, said the two Kenyan nationals are wanted for drug and wildlife trafficking worth millions of dollars. They were involved in transportation, distribution and smuggling of 190 kilograms of rhinoceros horns and 10 tons of elephant ivory from different countries in Africa, including our country, Kenya. And they transported these things to the United States. They were also involved in transportation and distribution of one kilogram of heroin from Kenya to the United States. Kinoti said Saleh was arrested in June 2019 and arraigned in a Kenyan court where he was released on bail. He was last seen in December 2019. Kinoti made no mention of Ahmed. Saleh and Ahmed were indicted in the United States in 2019 and the international police organization Interpol issued a red notice against the suspects. Eric Nedler, charge affairs of the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi, said in a statement that eradicating drug and wildlife trafficking is a priority for President Joe Biden's administration and the U.S. will work with Kenya to stamp out the crimes which are affecting both countries. Information on the reward offer can be found on the U.S. Embassy website. In July 2020, another suspected wildlife trafficker, Abu Bakar Mansour Mohammed Sarur, was arrested and extradited to the U.S. Sarur is believed to have been involved in the illegal poaching of at least 35 rhinos and more than 100 elephants. Mohammed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Right now it's time for music from our African collection. Yeah, one day, 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 y
can see me there. I didn't find I'm going to feel too bad. Cause if I lose, God, I'll be the great. Baby, I'll tap on, I'll be today. Package in the sofa, darling. Body night, bro, come, baby. See the black eyes like well, but it's can God, yeah, I mean, chill it. Oh, my God, see my God, hold on for me. You don't see where two women they fight. Now we think cause they fight. Premium tie. For me, Loro, no, 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 Okay, yeah, yeah, me home, mommy, say. Okay, there. Story, see, 
Put your hands up if you like. Banana ripe, oh oh ripe. I've been a banana delight. Over there. How do you like it? Is it fried or cooked? Or you like it raw? Oh my God. Wow.
That was music from the continent and we hope you enjoyed it. Nightline Africa comes to you on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC from the English service of The Voice of America. And from the rest of the Nightline team, including producer Saida Hamdoun, we say a big thank you for joining us tonight. And remember, as the elders say, what is sensible today may be derangement at another time. I'm your host, Peter Clotin, Washington, D.C. Good evening, Africa.